I want to welcome uh, a, a, a person, a man, who I am so thrilled to, to call a friend. Um, and, and obviously, we, we don't get to have coffee every day or anything like that, but I'm telling you, the times that I've been able to spend with Paul Young, I have been impacted by how you're in the moment, Paul, with everybody. I remember when we were stuck in that snowstorm up in, in Granville a uh, year and a half ago or whenever it was, I was sitting there, and honestly, guys, it felt like, uh, like you'd found yourself in a, in a really intimate setting where one friend was helping another, and you were almost like, should I be here? <laughs> should I back away? I mean, Paul, you're the most, uh, most in-the-moment guy I've ever met in my life, and I thank you for it, and I thank you for every single thing that you've contributed to us. And obviously, uh, I, I'm sure most of these folks have, have read The Shack. Uh, what I'd like you guys, yeah, just just give a shout, to unmute right. for a second and give a shout out to Paul, and then mute back so so we won't be in the Hey, everyone. Hey, hey, Paul. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Right. God bless you guys. All right, hey, go ahead. Hey, we'll, we'll mute back up. Paul, I don't know how to introduce or bring you up. There you are. So okay. we're going to pin your video. Everybody's going to be able to see you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're greatly honored that you're here. Take your liberties, and then we'll have a, a, a Q&R time after it's over. Sweet. Okay. It's been a good day. It's been a long day. Um, um, I just got off a call to Puerto Rico, and so I know Alicia's there, and uh, Flora's mom. And so that's pretty cool. But um, it's strange time, isn't it? I mean, it's just so odd. I want to read you a poem by my friend David Tenson, who, who wrote a poem about... Um, about this period it goes like this it's as if the car broke down and our on our way to the future and instead of waiting on the highway for road assistance we just moved into the car he writes i'm working from a plastic camping desk in my garage a two and a half grand macbook on a shaky 30 dollar table connected to the world through an invisible signal to a box attached to my phone line and twin 1024 by 768 dots of light. You're reading this from a pixelated miracle. Do we really have any idea? On the other side of the world, people are in lockdown and literally are starving to death. They'll never read this. I can still taste breakfast in my mouth. I can still taste the bitter irony of the poem. And we're asking ourselves, was the future we were headed toward at breakneck speed actually where we wanted to go? Weren't we already living some kind of Groundhog Day existence on a carefully crafted highway to somewhere we actually believed was created for us all? And we're asking ourselves, has the mid-crisis life we find ourselves in got something to say? Have the trees and the seas waving for our attention from across the eight lanes of progress Got something to say? Does our restless heart have something to say as we gaze into the wilderness through a finger-smudged window of a now broken-down car we could never really afford in the first place? I wrote a, a prayer for the pandemic. I was asked to write a prayer. And it just, um, it just so, it... it it's such an interesting time. You know, I was, having, I was uh, on the open table forum and I was, I don't know if I talked to everybody about it. I did a little bit about 
my grandkids and talking to them about COVID and all of this kind of stuff and just saying, you know, this is, this is a representative. I didn't say this to my grandkids, but uh, basically I talked to them about how a virus that has jumped hosts is representative of a moral failure of being human. And uh, we've just not lived with the earth in a, in a kind way, in a loving way, in a way that was given to us in terms of authority. We just haven't. And, um, and these are some of the consequences. And yet, this is not a God who runs away from suffering. This is a God who absolutely runs toward it. And you have to remember that in the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there wasn't suffering. There was mutuality. We brought suffering to the table. And God, knowing we would bring suffering to the table, Jesus is slain from the foundation, not by God, but known that we would bring our wrath and our destructiveness and, and our illusions of separation to the table. And it was still worth creating us. This is a God who, who not only loves us, but then adopts us. Baxter was talking about that today. Adoption, which is love, love by choice. Most of you probably know that in the Greek and the Roman culture, you could, you could disown a, a biological child because, they, frankly, they were having lots of children everywhere. And, um, and so you didn't want a biological child to have access to your property and inheritance. But, but the law was, in, in all the cultures, was that you could not disown an adopted child. Because an adopted child is a child by choice. I want this child. And uh, we have an adopted grandchild from Uganda, uh, Maisie. Maisie means longed for child. And I just have a sense that, that in the family of God, we are all Maisie. We're the longed for child. And uh, a God who runs towards suffering and fills up the spaces so at the same time as you, you know, you watch the images on the screen of, of big trucks that have been moved into New York because they don't have a place for the bodies, the refrigeration trucks and, and your heart breaks. It's just, uh, it's just that sense of knowing that you hear the whisper. If you're attuned to it, you hear the whisper, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Like Jesus saying to the disciples before going to the garden, you're going to run away and you're going to think that I'm alone. But I'm not alone because the Father is with me. Fear not. I'm with you. Um, for those of you who hadn't heard it, I, th I think I will read my little prayer for the pandemic. Let me just bring it up here so I can read it. And uh, it's, um, I call it a prayer of trust and longing. Um, and I need to figure out how to do this so that I can actually read it. Okay, here we go. A prayer of trust and longing in a trying time, which I think is, is pretty accurate, wouldn't you? Here's how it goes. And the numbers rise faster than we can process that these are, are not numbers, but each of these is a person. And each of these is not only one, but an interplay of persons, family, friends, even enemies, 
and each number blossoms like a rose, blooming its red wound against the backdrop of a thousand stories. Lord, have mercy. We know you are not the author of death, but you do know its grasp full well. We're not here to accuse, but to ask that you would be our comfort in the midst of the losses trending around us and toward us. Lord, have mercy. 2 Samuel 14, 14, one of my favorite verses. It doesn't start really great. I mean, it says, For we shall surely die and are like water spilled on the ground that cannot be gathered up again. Yet, you, O Trinity of love, you do not take away life, but you plan ways so that the banished one will not be cast out. Lord, have mercy. And as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil for you are with us. Lord, have mercy. Comfort, please comfort your people, that is each human being in this moment, needing to sense your relentless embrace of affection that whispers, I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lord, have mercy. Especially for those of us right now who cannot even celebrate the ones we've lost because we ourselves are among the banished. We cannot in community tell the stories and share the grief and hope that arises out of belonging. Our hearts feel cast off and cast away. Our emotions are overwhelmed and our crying offered in solitude. Lord, have mercy. In the midst of our sorrow, we give to you what we most cherish, our trust. You who are good and kind and present, we give to you our sadness and our longing. Speak to us your presence in the deepest places of our souls and may, like children, we moment by moment place our trust in you. Lord, have mercy. You know, I was, I was talking to Larry online or through messages or email or whatever about tonight, and we were talk, he was talking to me about grace for the day, which is sort of one of my big, my big things over the course of my life. In the, in the journey of my life from, from brokenness to toward wholeness, and I'm, I'm way further down the road than I was, you know, 30 years ago, that's for sure. But in that journey, it was a journey toward becoming a child. Um, last summer, I was over in um, Sun River, Eastern Oregon, and, and uh, I, was in a, I was in a gathering, small church, um, Episcopal, I think, and... Uh, and during the question and response time, somebody asked me, they raised their hand and they said, so there's this Irish proverb that I, that I would like you to comment about. Oh, you know, in questions and response times, you just never know. And it's like, there's this Irish proverb I'd like you to comment on. And it goes like this. When you die, the only thing that will have mattered is if you had impact, which is influence. What do you think about that? That was the question. And I'm really grateful for the Holy Spirit because often the Holy Spirit will just put in your mouth words that you haven't thought or you haven't thought through or you haven't thought up. And uh, nobody ever asked me about this Irish proverb before. And before I could even think, out of my mouth comes, you know, I've never heard a child say anything like that. 
But when you die, the only thing that will have mattered is that you had impact. I've never heard a child say anything like that. In fact, you have to become an adult to say something like that. Because children assume presence is impact. It's the very fact they're there that changes everything. It's presence. And presence is always present tense. That's why trust is always present tense. And our brokenness will push us out of the present and into some kind of future tripping imagination. So hence this theme for me of learning how to live inside the grace of just one day. Today. At the beginning of 2020, um, normally uh, the Holy Spirit will whisper to me a word for the year. Like one year it was open. Just open. Right? So that whole year was about just being open. And, um, and normally it's just one word. But this year I got three words. I got a phrase. And, and I didn't, you know, when I get, when I get it, I, I know that that year will be framed inside of whatever the words are. And, um, and the, the words that I got this year were trust the ripples. Trust the ripples. And I've, I've come to love that phrase because it means don't make your decisions based on outcomes or perceived imagination of outcomes. You know, trust the ripple. Be present. Respond to what's actually in front of you today. And let the outcomes be in the hands and the love and the care of a God who is good. Um, otherwise, you're going to always be trying to figure out what the outcomes are in order to validate the decision that you make rather than just participate. So that was one thing. The other thing that was really kind of a surprise, I think it's the first year in decades that I got a, a scripture verse to frame my year. And um, I think that's because the Holy Spirit knows how, how much antipathy I feel for how scripture has been used to, to pummel a bunch of us, you know, I'm a missionary kid, preacher's kid, and I grew up in the, the modern evangelical church, and, and I know um, what Scripture did. In fact, in my healing journey, I had to take a big break. It was like over 10 years, maybe even 15, where I just, I couldn't crack the Scriptures open. It just, there was just too much damage that came from the way those words had been used in my life. And I needed to detox and you know what? It was the right thing for me. And so, you know, and who knows who's out there and what you're going through. And you're going like, well, I, I try to read scripture and there's nothing there. Don't sweat it. You know, the beautiful thing about God is that he knows how slow we are. Yeah. And any healthy family moves at the speed of the slowest. And uh, institutions and systems, they always move at the speed of their vision or the speed of their leaders. And it tends to be the slowest that get shunted off and left in the background. So I don't, you know, the Holy Spirit normally doesn't give me a passage or a verse or anything like that. But I got one this year. And it's fantastic. It's Hebrews 3.13. And it goes like this. This is mostly New American Standard. Incur Let me just give you what it says. Encourage one another as long as it is called today. Or it's what it's saying is encourage, add courage to one another as long as it's about today. So that you are not swept away by the deceitfulness of brokenness. Encourage one another as long as it's about today. 
And so often we want, we want to be encouraged about our future tripping imaginations of what's coming down the road, what the outcomes are. What if this happens? What if I get sick? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? That's all future tripping. I have friends who, who think that they're not creatives, right? There's this, I think everybody's a creative. And I, and I go like, so let me ask you a question. Do, do you worry? And they go, well, yeah. I go, then you're a creative because trust me, in order to worry, you have to create imaginations about things that are not going to go well. And, uh, and that always pushes you out of the present and into some unreality. And in those imaginations where, you know, your kids have gotten sick or you've gotten sick or the kids have been in a, you know, like, for example, when your child doesn't come home and they're like an hour late or something. I mean, your imagination starts spinning into all kinds of horrendous sorts of situations and circumstances and um, future tripping. Or it's even subtle, like, I'm going to have this conversation with this person and then they're going to get mad at me. And then I'm going to react to it. And then we're, we're not going to talk to each other ever again. So I don't think I'm going to even talk to them now. I mean, it's all imagination. And a lot of times in those imaginations, we don't even see God. And the reason is God doesn't live in things that are not real. God lives in you. You're real. And in this day, encourage one another as long. And in in the New American Standard, the word today is all in caps because the Greek's emphatic. This is the same thing as Jesus, you know. Take no thought for tomorrow. That doesn't mean don't have a calendar or you know, make a will or those kinds of things. It's just saying, look, don't live there. You know, I have a calendar, but let me tell you, all it took was one virus and it just obliterated my calendar. You hold your calendar loosely. You don't live there. And, and so here we are in the presence and in the presence is fullness of joy. Joy has been a part of our lives forever but most of us didn't know it. I surely didn't. I was surprised. It was age 50 before I realized that joy had become a constant companion. And the truth about it was that joy had always been a constant companion. It was me that wasn't staying present to joy. I was running away into some imagination that didn't exist. And so it's like, no, be here. Be present. Because there is no separation. You are totally embraced inside the affection of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are the child that God always wanted. And, and the whisper is, fear not, I am with you. Fear not, I am with you. Perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. The one who fears is just not perfected in love. That is... The, the apprehension of that love has not come to fullness yet. It's not an accusation, and it's true for all of us to some degree. You know, the presence of fear has often been way more profound than the sense of the presence of love. But slowly, the Holy Spirit will help unwind the damage that, that prevents our ability to apprehend the love by which we are surrounded. So encourage one another as long as it's about today so that you're not swept away by the deceitfulness of brokenness. And I think that's a good place to, to take a break and uh, 
and open it up for questions and responses. What do you think, Larry? Thank you. Yeah, I think that would be a great place. Okay. It would be a great place. Thank you, by the way, for this invitation. Um, oh, my gosh, yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to kick it off just with a question that, that uh, I learned was a legitimate thing to ask just today while I was uh, online watching you guys. Yeah. And, uh, and then I've got one more to follow up with later. So those are the only two I'm going to, going to steal from folks. But uh, I saw a uh, dialogue back and forth in the, in the Q and a section about your friend in prison. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about that? That's Abu. So I, over the course of the last few years, I've become friends with the guys on death row in Tennessee. Oh, and let me, let me, you like story? Here it comes. I love stories. I just think that every human being is a story. So we have this affinity for story. So um, I have a, a friend named Tony and Tony is six foot eight. He was a pastor for years. One of the great lines that Tony said to me one time, because, you know, there was all this kerfuffle about God being a large black African-American woman in the shack. And, and he said, he said, you know, it was kind of a wake up call in certain respects, because he said, I can't imagine all those years that we believed that the cosmos, the creation was birthed into being by three men in love with each other. <laughs> the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were always men, you know, and uh, which is imagery just like any, you know, large black African-American woman. We have an imagery for God that is a lot of times incredibly difficult to get past and it's more like Gandalf with a bad attitude than it is anything else so Tony's my friend and Tony's my friend because of the shack and and here's why so Tony has a son who's in his 20s and and his son is should have been born in like the 1970s right he's a flower child kind of in the wrong century and um, there was a there was a uh, uh, exotic pet store in just outside of Nashville that uh, Tony's son was had a, his one of his best friends was working at and it and it started bothering Tony's son that um, that these animals were all in captivity so one night he broke into the pet store and he freed all the exotic animals so you had pythons and parakeets and and cockatoos running around Murfreesboro which is just outside of Nashville and um well, it turns out to be a felony, and he got sentenced to 18 months in federal penitentiary for releasing the animals. And, uh, and he's a tender soul, and it really crushed him. And, um, and he gotten out, and he was getting back on his feet. And Tony, who I hadn't met yet, uh, went down to uh, Jackson, Mississippi, for a gathering that Baxter Kruger was having, having with a whole bunch of men. And that's where I met Tony. And we had uh, some conversations and things like that. And then as Tony was leaving Jackson, he got a phone call from his son. And his son says, Dad, where you been? He says, well, I've been down in Jackson, Mississippi, and, you know, um, in the gathering with Baxter Kruger. And, oh, by the way, I met this author. Um, he wrote this book called The Shack. And I think you'd like it. And his son bursts into tears on the other end, starts weeping. And Tony is like, what's going on? And he said, Dad, you know, I haven't told you yet, but the day I bought a gun to kill myself, somebody handed me a copy of the shack. It saved my life. 
So I, I don't know about you. If you've got kids, you know that if somebody's kind to you, it's like, thank you. But if they're kind to your children, it's like, oh man, I'm yours forever. And so I'm kind of Tony's forever. It's really a sweet thing. Well, it was through Tony that I met David. And David was a, is Tony's friend. And David lives in Nashville, works for one of the big universities and was in a spiral. His marriage was hurting and, and he was suicidal and depressed. And somebody said to him, you know, instead of thinking about yourself all the time, maybe you should just take uh, a, a little bit of your time and think about somebody else. And so, so D- Dave, David starts looking around and, and decides that the people he most identified with that he could go help are the guys on death row, um, unit two in uh, Riverbend Penitentiary in Nashville. So he goes there and he says to me later when we met, he said, you know that passage that it says, you know, visit me in prison and feed, you know, you fed me and you visited me in prison. He said, our mentality is that Jesus sends us to the prison for their sake. He said, it's not true. His life was absolutely transformed by his exposure to the guys on death row. And and so I'm coming to Nashville to do this thing at Johnny Cash's old farmhouse with about 600 millennials. And, and Tony finds out about it, tells David about it. And David says, do you think he'd come to the, the penitentiary, to death row? And Tony says, oh, yeah, he'll do that. And he, know, he knows me enough to know that, yeah, absolutely. So uh, on Sunday afternoon, after I finished my time with the millennials, I hop a car and we go to the penitentiary, and I walk in, and I meet two guys uh, of the 56 that were on death row at the time. And one's name is Terry King and his friend Ron. And I tell you, Terry is one of the freest men I've ever met in my life. He'd been at that time on death row for 33 years since he was 18 years old. And um, under the influence of drugs and other things, he had killed a, a human being and got sentenced to, to death. And, and in fact, the day before I got, um, I, I went into the penitentiary and met Terry, his final appeal had failed. And so that's the state he was in. But we go in and we're in a small room and... Um, and he's been on death row for a long time, so he's got a lot of privileges. And so we're allowed to hug and we're allowed to talk and we're allowed to, he shared me stuff that he was working on. And every once in a while, he'd just reach over and he'd touch me on the arm and he'd start to cry. And he'd say, I can't believe you're actually here. And he says, can I tell you why the shack changed my life? I said, please. And he said, you know the cave scene with Sophia where the wisdom of God confronts Mackenzie and then the wisdom of God exposes Mackenzie to the reality that he was the judge. He's the one that judged the goodness of God. He's the one that was always making an accusation, not just to, about God, but also about other human beings. It's a very confrontive scene. And, and he says, Terry says to me, he said, when I read that passage, I ended up on the floor of my cell 
under such incredible conviction that I felt my skin was burning off and my clothes were burning off and I was under this fire because I, I realized all these years I've admitted what I had done, but I never owned it. And the reason that I didn't own it is because I am the judge. I thought, well, at least I'm better than the pedophiles here on death row. And he said, I was so confronted by my own capacity to judge people and to feel superior and better that I had never dealt with the fact that I had taken the life of someone whom God incredibly loved. And Terry then introduced me to a whole group of guys on death row. One of them is Abu. And that's, uh, that's who Larry was referring to. And I met Abu with about a dozen other inmates in their, they have a library, a small library in death row. And the guys in their workshop, woodshop, had crafted a table, seats about 12 people. And the table is called the Table of Reconciliation on death row. And one of the things is if you go in to meet the guys as a group, you go to the Table of Reconciliation. But also, on death row, if any of the guys have an issue with each other, they meet at the Table of Reconciliation and stay there until they deal with what their problem and issue is. I mean... I think we need a table of reconciliation pretty much everywhere on this planet and, uh, and in our homes and in our communities of faith and whatever, you know. And, uh, and so we sat around this table, a dozen of us, and there were three of us from outside. And, um, and after about two and a half hours of just talking and telling stories and listening to them, the three of us from outside were smart enough in that moment to keep our mouths shut while these guys closed in prayer. And then Abu, who is in, I think he's close to 70, who's been on death row for decades himself, in his deep African-American Southern voice, sings Amazing Grace, and we fall apart. And, and then I get the word couple months later that Abu's sentence had been, uh, that he had a death date. In fact, it was just a few days ago, April, April 11th. And um, that was to be the day that he was to be executed. And um, Abu, I mean, of, of all the guys on death row, pretty much they all agree that Abu is not even guilty for what he's there for. And uh, Abu, when he first came to prison, he came and, uh, and, and became a Muslim because it was, it was something rigid like that that gave him a sense of structure and a place of safety. And, and then, reading the Quran, he had an encounter with Jesus and became a follower of Jesus out of reading the Quran. And um, he had taken the name Abu, which is his Islamic name, and and um, and so we are such a tender man. And and um, so as I began to work on uh, one of my book projects, which is now because of these guys on death row gave me a, a storyline for a story arc for a potential sequel for the shack. So it's one of my book projects. 
And uh, the guys on death row are actually helping me with it, including Abu. I have a letter right over there from Abu. But um, about uh, a couple months ago, um, we got the word that his sentence had been commuted to life. Um, and it's still tenuous a little bit. Um, they could reverse that. But, um, and then there's also work going on to see if we can't get him out. Um, I don't know if you've seen the, the movie Just Mercy, uh, Brian Stevenson's movie from the book Just Mercy. He's a lawyer, one of the early lawyers, defenders of, of those who are on death row. But in his book, which is a magnificent book, uh, Brian talks about these guys on death row, and a bunch of them are my friends in Tennessee. And um, uh, one last little, I was, I was in Nashville not that long ago, and I spoke at uh, St. Henry's Catholic Church, big, huge church. There was, I don't know, 600 plus people there. And about 20 minutes into the conversation, I got uh, David. Remember David, who, the one who started this whole thing at uh, Unit 2? Um, David hands me a phone, and it's Terry King on the phone. And for 30 minutes, I got to let Terry talk to everybody. I put the microphone up to the phone and got to ask him questions, and he told his story, and he talked about the transformation of Jesus in his life. And I watched that room, and I watched Terry humanize the guys on death row. Because it's so easy for us to sit in a seat of judgment and feel superior in, in the brokenness of people's lives and to categorize those are people on death row and just then annihilate that category as if they're not even human. And part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to, to grant to us a capacity to be human. And, and when that begins to happen, you begin to see the glory of God in the eyes and the person of the other person, even if they're completely unaware of the fact that they are a child of God. And um, I know it's kind of a shock to people, but you won't meet a person who's not a child of God. And if you don't believe that, read, read Acts 17. Paul's very clear, speaking to people who had no clue about Jesus. And he says, you are all children of God. And since you are children of God, we are all. He says, we are all, including himself. And, and that's because the family of origin for every human being is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And a lot of our biological families of origin, they, they weren't the best and not the most helpful. Some were, some were fantastic. But a lot of us, I mean, we didn't get good help building the house on the inside. And, and we've got to deal with those kinds of losses. But ultimately, we begin to recognize that our family of origin is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And on top of that, then the Father, Son, Holy Spirit turns around and adopts us. So it's like, yes, you are my child, but let me, let me tell you the truth about who you are. Sorry about that. It's Kim. Um, let me tell you the truth about who you are. you are. You are not only my child, because all of creation was created in me and is carried and sustained and held in me. But I, now I adopt you so that you always know you are a wanted child. You are a longed for child. So Abu is, he's, uh, he's, doing, he's doing well. He's, he's now a lifer rather than on death row. His sentence was commuted. 
hopefully permanently, and um, hopefully we will continue to find a way to see if there's uh, a way to get him out. And um, maybe he can spend a few years of his life um, outside of, of that particular prison. But uh, like I said to Terry one day, I said, you know what, at least your prison is obvious. You know, it's stone and steel and brick and gravel. And, um, you know, there are, there are billions of people out there who have prisons themselves. They just don't see them. And, and they live lives inside. Yeah, I was, uh, you'll love this. I was in a conversation yesterday with a community of people that are from all over the world. They are working to bring food aid, you know, to places like um, Kampala in Uganda and Nepal and the Philippines during especially this uh, COVID crisis. And, and, but they're also on a journey from going from the, the mean ogre god to the, the, the trinity of love. And, and um, at one point during the conversation yesterday, the guy says, well, Paul, you, you know you just rattled a whole bunch of cages, including my own. And I said, you do know that you use the word cages, right? <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, let's see what questions are out there. You guys are going to have to be patient with us a little bit. Riley's going to pull this thing into gallery view. And uh, if you got a question, um, how are we doing this? Let's see if we can see it. Let me let me pull that up here. This is the first time we've done this kind of thing. I'll, I'll try to be brief so we can get to a few more. All right. Uh, All right, let me go. All right, let, Jeremy. Jeremy's family did a did a good job for us. Let's let him start here. Okay. I uh, I I've listened to you talk quite a bit, and I know you you come from uh, you know a, a history, and you talked about this openly of of abuse, and and to where you are today, where you're you know you're rubbing shoulders with uh, some wonderful men and women who have a really unique revelation that God's given them. Uh, when was the turning point? I guess that's you know we had a certain point where we just started to believe. And so when was your turning point, if that's... Uh, that's a good question. That's a fair question. Um, it was when my facade came completely crashing down. You know, um, I use the, the, the imagery of the shack. The shack is the house on the inside that people helped you build. It's your own broken heart, broken soul. And I love it when people grew up with a lot of good health, but a lot of us didn't. And um, so sexual abuse being part of my childhood, a, a dad who didn't have a chip for being a dad, um, all of those kinds of things. And, and the shack, the house, my own soul became the place where I never wanted to invite a human being. I mean, because I was terrified that I would see on their face. Hmm. Um, uh, the look of disgust that I saw in the mirror, you know? And, uh, and so uh, it became the place I stored all my addictions and hid all my secrets. And, and I tried to perform my way into perfection, you know, because that's what I was taught is that, yeah, you, you are worthless and you are just a piece of crap. That's the truth about who you are. But now you've got to try to, you know, pull up your Bible bootstraps and, and, and be righteous, you know? And God will help you, like, but it didn't work very well. And, and so in, in a denial of the broken place, I built a facade, you know, something that, that I could 
that hid the shack, but could I could paint as fast as I could pick up people's expectations. And I didn't do it. I, I really, this has been a revelation to me over time. And that is, I didn't build that facade to fool people, although that's what I felt like I was doing. I actually was hoping that if I could perform perfectly, I could become that rather than the broken place. But I, I wanted God to heal me without anybody else finding out about it. You know, I, I, I didn't want exposure. And the, and the crazy thing is that part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to expose us, not to humiliate us, which it feels like. But, but actually the unexposed is the unhealed. Unless you're exposed, unless you come out of hiding, unless you break your agreement with secrets, those things are going to continue to own you. And, and the road of exposure or into the light, it's terrifying and it's hard. My turning point, I had all this theological information. I'm a missionary kid, preacher's kid, and I pursued God with all of my heart out of desperation of nothing, even though I like Jesus way better than I like God the Father because of you know, all the theology and everything else and my own dad. But my pursuit was wholehearted and desperate. And yet I was stuck in my head. Everything below my neck was broken. That's where the addictions were. I drug all that into my marriage and, and it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to Kim. My turning point was when she caught me in a three-month affair with one of her best friends. That's the turning point because that completely exposed me and I had to make a decision whether to kill myself or face her. And I don't even know to this day how I made it across town. And, uh, you know, that's almost 30 years ago. And it took him and I 11 years to heal. And that 11 years is represented by Mackenzie's weekend in the shack that absolutely changed my theology, changed the way that I related to God, changed the way that I understood who I was as a human being. And, um, and, and I wrote that as a gift to my kids to just lay out. They all know my history. We never made my adultery the new secret, right? Because I was done with secrets. And we are as sick as the secrets we keep. So my, my, the big turning point for me was to absolutely be exposed. And, and man, there were a couple times within the right, right at the beginning and then about four months into it where I almost, I almost gave up. Uh, and um, the, the, you know, but a part of the part of my healing is that thankfully I married the wrath of God, you know, not somebody who would just go like, give me a pass. And, uh, and the wrath of God is a good thing, not a bad thing. The wrath of God is the love of God aimed at everything that is in me that is not of love's kind. And the, the intention of God is to absolutely destroy that which harms the ones that God loves, which is the children of God. So, so that, that's my turning point. That's the biggest one. I mean, there's incremental changes and turnings all along the way, but that, that's the big, that was the big watershed. Got a question from Ronnie. Okay. Hey, Ronnie. Hey, Paul. I don't know if you remember me. I kissed you on the head. I do. I do. You're, you're tall. Well, I'm short enough for you to do that. So. <laughs> Uh, two questions. One's real quick. Is Abu able to hang out with his death row buddies, or is he now yes. only 
Yeah, no, he is. He is, he is still. So um, they they don't quite know what to do with him yet. So um, he's in he's in that flux place. Yeah. So okay. he gets to be with them. The other question, or and the the other question will come in a second after I publicly thank you for helping me change my life by uh, brother. Te- you're welcome. Teaching me a new way to understand God in me and the love he has for me. It it wasn't available to me until I listened to your book audio wise for probably two, three months in a row every day. Wow. Wow. And it, it totally has changed things. Now Larry has been a big part of that. Yeah. Thank you. Holy spirit. We will have more please. Yeah. Okay. So um, the question has now come um, when I have a new perspective of God in me. I think God's in everybody, actually. I do, too. And, and uh, so now I have troubles with a lot of Christian songs. <laughs> oh, welcome to my world. Yeah. So yeah. I'm wondering, because here's the deal. Um, I believe a lot of Christian songs are there to help us absorb spiritual truths. Yeah. And when they're not actually a, a truth, I have a trouble, really big troubles with them now. Yeah. And, so probably I probably used that longer than me. How do you deal with that? So I was at Belmont University, and, and it's, a, you know, it's a Christian university, and they have all these degrees in music, right? And so they asked me to speak at chapel. And I'm very careful. You know, my freedom does not give me the right to rip people through the bars of the prison they call home, right? Okay. Okay. And, and, uh, but there are moments where the Holy Spirit, for whatever reason, inside the grace of that day, and in that particular unique situation, grants to me a huge amount of latitude, you know, or even encouragement. And so when they asked me to speak there, they opened up with some songs. And I got up and I, I said, look, I have two basic questions for you. One is, why aren't you singing your own songs? I mean, you have all these degrees and you've got to sing other people's old songs. And then why are you singing songs that are full of lies? You know, <laughs> and, and I said, look, one of the songs that they sang, which I despise, right, is you are good, you are good, there is nothing good in me, right? And, I, and so we brought that one back up. In fact, we brought both of them back up and we went through it line by line and said, that's a lie. Well, that's a lie. Look, this, it says, and I said, if you wrap lies inside really good music, you can be really destructive. Hitler understood that. That's what propaganda is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, so how do you deal with it? Yeah. You don't deal with it in a global sense. Like, I mean, um, you deal with it as it, as you're exposed to it. And, and here's, let me, let me use a different analogy. Institutional religious systems are not what Jesus was after because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not religious at all, right? Um, but the world is full of them. So don't be surprised if the Holy Spirit draws you or keeps you within an institutional structure of one sort because you can't get away from them, right? Right. But you're not there to be an anarchist either. You know, you're, you're there to be the presence and the incarnation of love. And so our response is really significant. So it's not a global like, well, let's, let's just trash Christian music, you know. 
One is we have got such a secular, sacred divide that we even think there's such a thing as Christian music. Right? And, yeah. and it's like, no, don't you understand that there's a reason that Presbyterian pastors will go to an Elton John concert whom they absolutely disagree with and they will raise their hands and turn on their iPhones, you know, which they'd never do in a church service. Why? Because Elton John, as a human being, has a freer capacity to express matters of their humanity that their church services won't allow, you know, or their religious conditioning won't allow. So one thing is to realize that music becomes a vehicle of, of great human expression across the board. And, and when you begin to categorize it into certain categories, you're, you're doing a disservice in, in your own heart and mind and, and to the community of humanity as well. So, so that's one thing, if you're going to talk about a global issue. But when you're going to deal with anything like that, it's going to come down to what is actually in front of you today? Are you being asked to respond to Christian music? Are you being, you know, is there a musician that, that is in front of you who's, who, who it's important for you to get to know? You know, so again, we can come up and, and, and kind of be asses about this whole thing, Right. And, and have a chip on our shoulder and look for reasons to be perturbed. Or we can, we can begin to just be, the, be present inside of these things, right? What do we think the world and the world of religion is going to be like? It's going to be a mix of beautiful things and horrible things. It's just how human beings are. And so it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, not, in, I'm not in charge of, of fixing or changing or healing anybody. I'm not, right? I get to be responsive in the grace of the day inside the moment to what's actually in front of me. And that moves me away from a position in which I could easily become a judge here, right? And suddenly I feel like better, you know? Because at least I'm better than you. And, and as, soon as, we, as soon as we get there, we're, in, we're, we're back into the same kind of, horrendous kind of thinking that got us in trouble in the first place. Do you follow? Yeah, but let's say there's a song that's going on and it's in the... Ask uh, the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit. You okay. know? No, is the Holy Spirit, what do you do? Is that, I mean, do you stop... I, ask the, I ask the Holy Spirit. If I'm like, sometimes I sneak out because I just can't stand it. It's so toxic to me. Okay. And, 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 but sometimes I sit there and I, and I begin to pray. And I begin to find ways to love the people around me. There is no broad brush answer to these kinds of questions. It's, it's a responsive thing inside the moment. This is why it's all about presence. And, and this is why in the moment, I will give you what to say. If, you're gonna, if you are to say something, I'll give it to you. And I'm also thankful that God has brought it to my attention that actually now I see there's not truth there. Oh, yes. And that's a point of celebration. But it's not, it's not a position to then feel superior. It's like, no. oh, my gosh, I am so grateful that you're not like this. You know, right. people, see, people watch the movie. This is a great illustration. People watch the movie, and there's a scene at the end in the church. And, and I kind of fought the, the producer about that. But his wife was a co-producer, and she loves the song. And, it, and I'm going to like, oh, ah. 
you know, <laughs> our God is an awesome God. And, and which, I mean, there's a lot of things true about that song, but I didn't like the triumphalism of it. And I was at, um, I was at a screening before the movie came out. I was hosting a screening in, um, in, in Waco, Texas with uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines in their community, right? And, um, and so I'm down there and um, during the question and response time, that scene came up and, and somebody my age responded to it and a millennial responded to it. And both responses were positive. And, and me, I'm, I've got this little thing going on about that scene, you know. And, and here's what they said. The millennial said, I love that scene. And here's why. It was such an exposure of what I don't want. Right? I, I don't want that, that God in the, in the stained glass window. The, you know, the, the white grandfather looking down from the stained glass window and, a, and the Holy Spirit being a bird. And, and, and it's like that scene was great because even, even Mackenzie is conflicted in that scene. He knows that there's so much more than what that stained glass represents. But he was, and here's what the, the person my age said. I love that scene because just because you have a revelation of God doesn't mean that you move to a different planet. You still have to work it out inside of the incongruencies of this world, right? And, and, and now you get to work it out inside of tension and friction. And it's like, that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. And, um, and so this issue about songs, man, I'm, I'm with you uh, in so many respects on an ideological level but when it comes down to it i want to be the presence of kindness and goodness and and be helpful in terms of that and i'm not gonna i'm in a lot of situations where people are saying stuff that i absolutely think is wrong mm. not my place right i'm i'm there to see where the fire is lit and see if i can't fan that mm-hmm. right so thank I, I you oh you're welcome you're welcome Paul, we've got a follow-up question that actually is asked by multiple people. Okay, cool. And uh, here it is. It, it refers back to the, the first part of your, you're talking about exposure from your addictions. And it, it says, if I change, another one would say, if I repent, or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Do I really still need to be exposed? Yeah, you do. <laughs> um, because you are as sick as the secrets you keep. You know, we would love to find a way that we don't have to actually become truth tellers. You know, and it doesn't mean exposure is something to the world. Um, it, it means inside the relationships that are impacted by it or inside, you know, and if you have to pay somebody to be trustworthy for that exposure, start there, a therapist, you know, or somebody, and um, a spiritual director or somebody. But, but yeah, the things that are hidden are going to be... S- Shouted from the mountaintops, right? I mean, this is the point. And it's not because, oh, what an opportunity to humiliate you. No, it's like, I want you whole, and you've got to come into the light for that to happen. And that, yeah, it feels horrible, let me tell you. I would never want to go through that process again, but I am grateful for it every single day. And, um, so, yeah, and, and exposure is it, 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 it's not a blanket statement, right? It's, it's, um, it's like uh, the Holy Spirit will, will lead you into what that means as, and, you know, 
as as it's significant, but you got to come out of the dark. I mean, you've got to let somebody else into your world. And and I'm I've been around enough twelve steppers and all of those programs to know. You got to come into the light. You got their exposure is absolutely essential, and and our frame of reference is exposure is such um, a guilt and shame, more shame based. Shame and guilt deal with completely different things. Guilt is I've done something wrong. So it, it's a reality in the realm of behavior. Shame exists in the reality of what's called ontology or the truth of who you are. What is the truth of who you are? Shame is an attack against the truth of who you are. Guilt is an exposure of behavior. And so guilt has a really powerfully positive place to play. Shame has no positive place to play. Shame, shame is the whisper that says you're not enough. You're a piece of garbage. You're totally depraved. You have a sin nature. That's all shame. And it's not true. You're made in the image and likeness of God. You're a child. You're well-loved. You always have been. That's true. But shame is an attack against the things that are true. But yeah, sad. It, and, and again, I'm not talking about exposure on a global level. It's just my exposure just happens to be more public. And partly because I know the Holy Spirit is camped inside my ability to be vulnerable in order to give people hope. Because frankly, in the churches I grew up, nobody talked about anything, especially their brokenness. Everybody covered it over as if it didn't exist. And then you ended up comparing how you felt about yourself on the inside against how people portrayed themselves on the outside. And you always lost, you know? And so comparison and competition and all of the shame-based stuff, not helpful. Okay, Paul, I've got a question from somebody. I was looking for him and I can't find him just because of the multi-screen. So I'll read it to you. Okay. Uh, this is asked from Brett and... Carol, I guess my sister, do you have intolerance against certain behaviors, maybe towards your children, grandchildren, or tolerance for all behaviors? Do oh. you speak out against immorality at all? Absolutely. Like There are things that are just fundamentally wrong. Uh, the sexual abuse of a child. Uh, I don't care what you say about anything. That is absolutely wrong. Right? But even in the midst of that, some of my friends on death row are pedophiles, right? And so, so even there, the reality of who they are. This is Paul who says, I judge no one according to the flesh. But uh, this is Paul that also says, stop doing what you're doing. Are you kidding? You have, have you, do you not know who you are, right? So, so intolerance might not be the right word, but because it sounds like a, a prejudicial term, right? But in terms of, of being able to declare that, yeah, there are things that are wrong, and they're just wrong. They're wrong, 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 wrong. And, and, um, and I have no problem saying that they're wrong. I have no problem taking a stand that they're wrong. But I do have a problem if I, if I use that stand to then annihilate the value of, of a human being. And that's really tough when they've hurt your child, you know? And I've got, I've got situations like that in my world. I'm not, I'm not immune. I'm not immune. I'm not in some ivory tower here. 
you know, and, uh, and I'm opposed to the harm that is done to anybody. And um, so, yeah, great question. My gosh. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it could go for a long time, that one. Jason, go ahead. Oh, okay. Hi, Paul. Hi. You are like a, you're like a rock star in our world, so I'm ah. just glad that I'm a fellow musician. Uh, <laughs> but no, really. Uh, it's, a, it's a privilege. It's an honor. Um, I got a chance to listen to the Table Talk this afternoon. Oh, isn't and it you sweet? made a statement. Oh, it was so sweet. It was so sweet. You, you made a statement that I would, that I would love to uh, just share with everybody because uh, Pastor Larry had given us uh, all a chance as a body before the beginning of the message when we would get together for church to proclaim the gospel. And after listening to you for, for years and, and reading your materials, my proclamation boiled down to about three seconds. But you had said something today that I thought was, Brad said that it was like true theology. And I just wanted to share it if, if please, that would be okay. I don't have a clue, but please do. You, <laughs> well, you said somewhere there is always a home. Yeah. There is always a place where I will be seen and welcomed because I am known who I actually am, not what I pr purport to be or what others have told me I am. Yeah, come on, brother. That, that is so beautiful. That is, that is a proclamation of the gospel in my heart, man. Come on. Every one of us has a longing to be seen, to be home, to be wanted, to be embraced, not for our damage, not in spite of our damage, <coughs> but because we're seen for the truth of who we are. Not for what we've been told who we are, not for what we purport to be. Yeah, That's the, that is the longing of the human heart. Absolutely. And, and then that is just so good, Paul. I was wondering, your life message, uh, is about this very thing, but we've heard a lot of teachings. We can all go on YouTube and we can probably find a thousand messages on the power of the Lord. And, and what I am asking you is if you can share and if you can somehow capsulate, I know it's your entire message, but if you can somehow capsulate what the power of the Lord is and how it's manifest in your life and how you believe that it manifests in each of our lives. It is, it is the indwelling presence of other-centered, self-giving love. It is, it is the power of the Lord is the willingness to wash the feet. And, and not as an act, but as an expression of the core of reality. This is a God who submits by nature. So the power of the Lord is the presence of the relentless affection. It is, we, it is overwhelming in its intimacy. And, and here is part of the beauty. It is intimacy that drives reverence and awe, not distance. 
Religion teaches distance and separation. And this is about, I'm with you. This is a, the power of the Lord is presence. That's what it is. It's the presence. And, um, and, oh my gosh. Yeah, there's so many nuances that it just, my mind is just tumbling over and down the, down the little riverbed, you know. It's, um, the power of the Lord is gentleness. The power of the Lord is kindness. The power of the Lord is patience. The power of the Lord is humility. Right? I mean, and, and, and we want a God who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I heard, behold, you know, who is hope? Where is hope for the human race? Who can open up the scroll that is all sealed up? And I heard a voice behind me say, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, and turning I saw a freshly slain little lamb. The power of the Lord is a freshly slain little lamb. The power of the Lord is the cruciform Christ. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Paul, we're getting we're getting down to the the part where the cue and our session gets hard because the moderator has to pick a couple and cut off <laughs> some others. Yeah, we, I, and I got to go eat breakfast, uh, supper with Kim too. So come on. Okay. Well, then, then uh, unfortunately, I, I'm going to have to to cut it back to my last question. But this will actually be of interest to a number of the people that are on here. Okay. When we were when we were up at Den in Denver at Peter Heights Church, I made the acquaintance of of Jerry Bo Boschman. And I don't know if you got to meet Jerry, but he has a network called Hope for All uh, and just a fantastic guy. And I was with him last night and I got I got pressed into service to speak for you and for Baxter. Oh, nice. And, and I accuse us of being universalists. <laughs> they are universalists. And your question was the opposite. Here's what it was. And, and I, I think I was able to answer for Baxter because I'd heard him talk about it specifically about not slipping into universalism. But the question for this group is, uh, as close as you get when you talk, you retain the, the title of a hopeful universalist. What is it that keeps you from going from a hopeful to just a, 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 a Christian? Yeah, or, or, or you know, person who believes in ultimate uh, okay. redemption. Well, ultimate redemption is the proper term. Um, and that's scriptural. Yeah. And I don't know what that means. But here's the deal. The early church wrestled with this a lot. And they came up with, you cannot presume that all will be restored fully face-to-face, -face, but you cannot presume that they won't. We don't know. And, and the tension, and, he, and I think the tension is meant to be there because of the high respect that God has for the human creation and your ability to say no. And, and, and I think where Baxter and I and Brad, we, we, we walk up to that line because our hope is not in a doctrine. It is actually in a person and in the goodness of God. So, so and, and, you know, at that point, you're dealing with how this all works out and what, it, what does it actually mean? Don't know. I know there are ages of judgment. I know that's scriptural. I know that 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 we that we still have an ability to choose post mortem. I know that. 
I, I know that the work of God is not going to just simply, oh, presto, changeo, we'll fix everything, because there's still the burning away of wood, hay, and stubble through the love of God. You know, so, so what does that all mean? I, I'm not sure. And, and I don't, I'll tell you where to look. Um, on, my, on my website, which is WM Paul Young, WM for William, because that happens to be my first name, and, but I've never gone by it, except for I wrote a book and put William on there and it kind of stuck. So, so WMPaulYoung.com, there is a page called um, Resources. And on that page, there is some really helpful resources, including a, a bunch of articles by Brad. And one of them, the article is titled, Why I Sound Like a Universalist, But I Am Not, right? And in that article, he goes into why the term universalist has become such a problem, because it doesn't mean just ultimate reconciliation. It means a whole bunch of other stuff. And, and there's a real tendency within that kind of term to end up denying the, the necessity of what has happened in the incarnation. And, and that article goes into detail about how that plays out. And I think that that's a much better answer. That article is a much better answer than um, I can give you in a quick form, but you get a sense of it. And, and so on the one hand, my issues are about the tension that I think needs to be there because there's always this sense that you will always have the ability to say no to love um, or else, you know, why didn't God just not give us that ability to begin with and then solve the whole problem, which would meant there would have been no love. <laughs> that's a problem itself. So, um, so yeah, so that's where I, I'd go read that article. And, and there's another one by Brad that's right next to it, and it's called The Three Views of Salvation. That are re that one's really helpful as well. So okay, uh, cool. I'm going to defer to Brad on that one. All right, sounds good. I, I want to let you speak for yourself. I, I, uh, that's always a fun to get in a new group of friends and, and, and have them ask a question that you're supposed to speak for somebody else. <laughs> At the end of the day, what would it cost you to think that that ultimate reconciliation meant that every, every person would be fully and completely restored face to face. You know, that I sure hope that's true, you know, and it's going to be some religious, probably one of my people that will be the last person if that's the case, you know, and um, that's, you know, that, you know, I didn't need God to begin with. I had religion, you know, so, um, so what, what would it cost us? And at the same time as, how does that change the way that I live now? You know, in terms of, I already fully embrace the fact that we're included and that we're highly dignified and respected, even when we say no to love, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and so what does that change about how I live today? Religion wants to make ideologies divisive. Like, what's the point? Uh, so what? Yeah, you know, binary or either yeah, yeah. yeah, I know. And it's like, hmm, you know what? If you're looking for a reason not not to change, you will you can find one. I'm sure. Well, any closing comments, Paul? I'll let you go to dinner. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, no, not really. I mean, uh, back to some basic things like 
you're the, you're the you're the child God always wanted, you know that kind of stuff, you know. And uh, and it's like relax, give yourself some grace, you know. Um, it just you're not behind the curve, you're not late. This is a process, and the Holy Spirit m- moves at your pace because otherwise would would be overwhelming. And oh, here here's a here's a visual. I see spiritual development and growth and maturity and wholeness as a, as a spiral that goes deeper and deeper into the places of the soul. So there are places that, you know, you thought you dealt with that get triggered, you know, 10 years later, but that's just because you've gone deeper into the soul. The problem is, is that those spirals are so close together, it feels like you're going in circles. <laughs> and you just like, oh man, I've seen this territory before. Well, God doesn't build roads going nowhere. And he and God who has begun a good work in you will perfect it. So this is, he is working in you both to will and to do. So work it out, you know. So this is participation. God will not heal you apart from your participation. But you're never the same person two days in a row because this is being orchestrated and choreographed by a God who knows how to do this, one without destroying you, hurting you more. And also, second, how to do this in a way that maintains the dignity of your will being more and more freed up. Because our wills are very coerced by lies, by doctrine, by ideology, by abuse, by experiences, by perpetrations, you know. And the, and the, the movement of the Holy Spirit is to free your will. And that movement, why? Because the more free your will becomes, the more your capacity for love there is. And, um, and it's, a, it's a dance, yeah. but it's, it's this spiral that goes deeper and deeper. And, and you're not in charge of it, but you absolutely participate in it. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. 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 Thank you